Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Okay, hi Jane. Hi Renee. Hi everyone. My name is Renee Bondi and I'm adjunct professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Windsor and I'm here today with Jane Nicholas. Jane is an historian at St. Jerome's University in the University of Waterloo and she is the director of the Tri-University Graduate Program in History. Jane's research interests include the history of the modern body. Her previous publications include The Modern Girl, Feminine Modernities, The Body and Commodities in the 1920s, and also Feminist Pedagogy in Higher Education, edited with myself and Tracy Penny Light. Her most recent publication is the subject of our chat today. We're going to talk about Canadian Carnival Freaks and the Extraordinary Body, 1900 to the 1970s, and that's published by the University of Toronto Press. So, Jane, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to this area of study? I guess I'm wondering specifically how your interests in the modern girl and in cultures of display and commodification led you to the study of carnival freaks and the extraordinary body. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways I see this project as being the other half, like an extended other half of the Modern Girl project. So the Modern Girl was really interested in the beautiful body and the uh, display of beautiful bodies, especially things like uh, beauty contests. And I should explain to listeners now that uh, we're both giggling a little bit because my 100-pound Malamute has just joined us in the room, so he might say hi to folks as well. Um, But I was really struck at the fact that beauty contests, modern beauty contests of the 1920s, uh, were held at a lot of the same venues that you had carnivals. And so it was interesting to me that, you know, in the same spot at the same time, you'd have the freak show on one side and the modern beauty contests on the other, like literally in the same space. And so it got me thinking about how constructed beauty is, but then also how constructed the freak was in opposition to that idea of beauty. And it's interesting to me that oftentimes we see disability as being incompatible with beauty, but I think that reveals itself to be a historical construction. Wellington, no. So that's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about the physical juxtaposition of the beauty contest and the freak show and how close in physical proximity at carnivals and exhibitions those two those two uh, events and and those groups of people would have been. Um, You begin your book at the CNE Mm -hmm. and you talk about 
a girl named Pookie, and you tell a very shocking story about Pookie, five-year-old girl who's exhibited at the CNE in 1973. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about that story and how that, to you, and, and I think certainly to the reader, is a very persuasive uh, lead-in to the larger story of, of Canadian freak shows. Yeah, I think, I think Pookie's story is particularly compelling to me because it's so late in the 20th century. And in some ways, it's so representative of the stories of so many children across the 20th century. But it's shocking because it's 1973. Right. And the way we often think of the freak show is at quite a historical distance from our more contemporary moment. And so her story, and she's not alone, right? There were other displaced throughout the 50s and 60s. But her story, for me, sort of extends the timeline for the entire history of the freak show. So it's not just these odd Victorians, mm -hmm. you know, doing wonky things in the 19th century or, you know, people with poor taste in the early 20th century. She really implicates, I think, all of us in um, the story of the freak show or the history of the freak show. And she's exhibited um, in Toronto at the CNE, which is this large, prestigious fair in the center of Toronto, I might add, and in plain sight. And I think what's really interesting about her story is that there's a small number of people who complain about it. But those complaints, because of the shifting context of the time, bring about a ban at the CNE. And that was a place for me to both end the study where it the freak show is that a ban is announced in 1973, so it provided a sort of closing point for the live freak shows, um, but also a place to start because the issue of poverty, the issue of the stigma of disability, her mother was a single mother, all of these pieces resonate backwards into the 20th century as well. And um, you know, when Pookie's mother speaks to reporters, she doesn't give her name, and so and we don't know Pookie's real name. That's not her real name. She was exhibited as the monkey girl, and that's a total fabrication. But her mother says, look, I'm a woman without a husband. I'm trying to raise my children, including this one child who has greater needs on the family budget, or greater demands on the family budget. And she says, how am I supposed to do this? And her two other children are also working at the CNE that year, but they're in the background. And Pookie's display as the monkey girl seems really pathetic in 1973 because she's just standing on stage crying. And even though Sam Alexander, who's the showman who's brought her to the CNE that year, says it's her first time, so she's just nervous, it's clear that she's not performing. And so her display just seems remarkably pathetic. And so in some ways it's important because it has all of these factors around poverty and the stigma of disability, but also the fact that those get pierced in 1973, where there is more of a movement just to end the shows outright. Mm -hmm. um, the persistence of what you refer to in the book as that triangle of vulnerability, I think is shocking to those of us who you know, we're around in 1973. That's within my lifetime. I'm yeah, not yeah, far yeah. off from the age of that child. And I, you know, I just can't even imagine something like that happening in my lifetime. But um, I think your book um, really kind of helps people to reorient their way of thinking about particularly childhood and disability um, and 
you know, in an era, I guess, in the post-war era where we, we tend to have, have higher um, expectations or, or ideas about, about the treatment of children. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, um, I think persistent is the word for it. And to me, it is shocking that it's into the 1970s. But, you know, Foucault starts the history of sexuality with the notion that we are the other Victorians. And I think some ways Foucault's display reveals that, right? That um, a lot of what we see is being from another time has been carried forward with us. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I guess, um, you know, it's another, it's yet another example of um, a history of, of those subjects on the margins, you know, who mm-hmm. often aren't uh, represented in history, are silent in the historical record. And um, when I read the book, I was really impressed with the lengths that you went to find good sources. And I imagine there were some challenges there. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of challenges there. Um, at times, I felt like I was my own traveling sideshow. Um, because I went a number of places across North America to try to find little bits of information and piece them together. And I think one of the things that we all face when we turn to marginal subjects is that traditional archives were often uninterested in those stories and that you have to find them in perhaps less traditional places or go through those traditional sources with a sort of fine-tooth comb. And there are some uh, public and private uh, archives that are have dedicated collections to circus history, and I'm really grateful for those. But um, yeah, you piece it together through newspapers, the sort of ballyhoo sources of those uh, narrative constructions, promotional materials for the freak show, um, medical journals, which turned out to be more important than I thought they were going to be. Uh, memoirs from showmen, uh, letters, photographs, and sort of piecing it together. It's challenging because a lot of it was written by adults. Some of it was written for children because children, of course, were consumers of the freak show as well, not just being exhibited. They were on both sides of the canvas. Um, But I think historically marginalized people, because they were seen as being perhaps unimportant historically, it appears as a historiographical problem for researchers today, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I faced that. But, you know, I used to challenge myself anytime I traveled for work or otherwise to go to an archive to see how long it would take me to find a photograph of the freak show, and those were abundant. It was mm-hmm. really easy <laughs> to find photographs. But photographs are really troubling for me, and that's why there's so few of them in the book, because I had a hard time distinguishing between myself as a historian and myself as a sort of quasi-show person reproducing a sideshow. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did notice that the photographs that are in the book are very carefully curated. It's very obvious that... Um, you were careful not to um, exploit and re-exploit your subjects, and yet many of the photographs give us an interesting view, I think, of the 
construction of the sideshow, the advertising, um, the perspective of the crowds. Um, so I think in the end, um, although as you say, there it's it's not a it's not a photo essay by yeah. any stretch. Yeah. There are a few photographs. They're used really really well. Oh, I'm happy you think so. It was one of the sort of hardest pieces. And, you know, I have literally hundreds of photographs that didn't make it into uh, the book that I wanted to select ones that either held viewers at a distance or helped to um, bring the reader to a place where they saw themselves as part of that history as opposed to something mm -hmm. that they could be a neutral observer from at a distance. Um, or uh, photographs where people were looking back, which was something that the live freak show did, right? Is it had the freak look back at you? Um, but I don't know. I think other people would have made other choices about the photographs, but uh, and that's fine. But for me, I just I didn't know where that line was. That the idea of the freak looking back is something that really challenged me as a reader um, when I thought before reading the book when I thought about people who were exhibited in sideshows I of course thought about their exploitation and their commodification people are making money yeah. from uh, their labor um, and it's really clear when you read the book that the majority of these freaks were taken advantage of and they were used to profit the carnival owners what I really hadn't given a lot of thought to until I read your book was the fact that Freaks were also workers, yeah. that they profited from their labor, and that the notion of display went both ways, that attendees at the carnival looked at these extraordinary bodies on display, but those extraordinary people were looking back. Yeah. And I think you deal with that in a few really interesting ways in the book. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, because it was a complicated relationship on a live sideshow, right? That you had an audience that wasn't held at a distance. They were very much either right at the stage or looking down into the pit if it was a, if it was a pit show. And so you could have interactions between even the smallest performers and the, the youngest performers and the audience. And audience members would often you know, say something or speak to the performer. And of course the performer could speak back. And so they shared this sort of interesting power relationship. It was always an unequal one, but there was capacity for the person who was being infreached to speak back against the person in the audience. If they said something they found offensive, for example. But the other thing about the sort of performance part of the display for me was the realization that even if you have all of this narrative apparatus of you know the ballyhoo which is being shouted out or the pamphlets that are being circulated beforehand, the performance on stage still requires the person being in freaked to do something other than to be themselves because you know freaks are of culture not nature so it's not enough even to put someone with an extraordinary body on stage they have to do something um, unless they're very, very small and the infants were different, but they were presented differently. Um, but they have to do something. And I think to go back to the Pookie story, I think this is what causes the outcry, is that she's not performing. 
Mm-hmm. And so people see her in a more human cast, a more human light, than they see other performers. Um, and I think that is ultimately what causes the outcry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I notice as you're speaking that you're using the word freak and, yeah. you, and um, the verb um, to end freak or to be end freaked. Um, and one of the things that I had to um, sort of adjust to as a reader was the use of language. And much of the language of the freak show is very fraught, mm-hmm. right? And, and has very negative connotations. And, and to refer to a person as a freak isn't a comfortable position <laughs> for me. Um, how did you grapple with that? And there were other words in the book as well. You used the word midget because that word was used in the context of the carnival. Um, how, how did you deal with that yourself? Yeah, it was hard. It's, if I can start with the funny part of this, which sure. doesn't seem like a natural place to start, but oftentimes, even now if I'm sitting in meetings, someone will use the word freak and then stop and look at me and say, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I think we still do use it. There's this sort of casualness in our language around freak. And then when you start talking about its actual usage on the sideshow is when we start to feel that sense of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was the language that was used at the time. And I think as historians, we all face that sort of tricky decision of where's the line between repeating you know, these horrible power relations at work in this language and sanitizing the past. And do you give it a sort of shinier gloss if you don't use the language? Um, But I am really careful about it. Um, And I do speak to that in the introduction to the book um, about those issues. But it seemed to me that one of the problems with the freak show is there's this sort of dodgy nostalgia around it, that it was somehow a safe place, it was a better time, if only we could go back there, and, you know, it was just fun. I'm not sure people thought of it even in those simplistic terms in the past, but to somehow sanitize it, I thought, might also play into that nostalgia mm-hmm. around the freak show. Um, but yeah, it was a much like using the photographs, right? It's this really difficult decision. And there certainly are words that I wouldn't use and I didn't use in the book. Um, But some of them used in the context of the time I thought were appropriate. Mm -hmm. But yeah, freak is still uncomfortable and yet it still rolls up people's tongues. You know, for the, it took me a long time to work on this project and I had so many moments at conferences or just in town where people who didn't know me but who knew that I was doing the project, when they saw me, would stop and point and say, circus freaks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's still commonly used, right, as as a word. And I think, I hope that maybe the book helps trouble some of that history. Sure. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, You you mentioned that, um, you know, there, there was that sense of 
of lightheartedness and fun and enter the the entertainment value of the carnival is undeniable. That's yeah. why people attended. That's why they brought their children. Um, there was also a little shift, and and I think that you um, explain it very clearly in the book um, from the carnival and particularly the sideshows as being purely for entertainment to a marketing strategy that sold the sideshow as educational. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier in this discussion that you referred a lot to medical journals. Mm-hmm. And the way that science and medicine was used, the language of science and medicine, advances in scientific ways of thinking were used by carnival uh, promoters yeah. was really, really compelling. Yeah, it, it was fascinating to me because um, some of the existing narrative was that the freak show was essentially put to rest because the freak became a medical specimen and went inside the clinic. And if there's one thing that I can say for absolutely certain in sort of a speculative history of the freak show um, is that freak show... Uh, managers and promoters were remarkably good at tapping into the wider culture of the time of what was happening. And so they do make educational exhibits. They do see the rise of child consumers beginning in the 1920s and start marketing directly towards children as consumers. Um, And they see and they really witness the rise of medicine as the key sort of explanatory profession for the body and they pick up on this in such interesting ways and like some of them are just totally cheeky so Conklin in the 1920s has an exhibit um, and it's essentially a girl show which was a show of you know early stripping but they in their sort of promotional materials say well it'll give you a lesson in anatomy well that's like a cheap throwaway right But at other times, they really tap into medical discourse and try to provide scientific explanations for the freak show. And so they really want you to come see this one exhibit. And the child, Ernie Lennon in the 1930s, is a good example of this. And they say, come and see him, and you can witness this medical marvel. And they have all of this sort of big scientific language and, and terminology for it. And they have nurses, allegedly nurses. They tended to be women from the girl shows who sort of did double duty as nurses. They have nurses and doctors there. And so they tap into that whole apparatus. And it helps keep the shows alive because it gives people another reason and perhaps an easier out. It's not just sort of frivolous consumption. It's educational too, right? So there's a sort of different apparatus that comes into it at the same time. Right, and with the rise of child protection, for example, Mm -hmm. they needed another reason. They couldn't just blatantly exploit, particularly children. There needed to be a reason for, and some of it was, it was very paternalistic, was uh, they, they sort of couched their relationship to these children, which they have to who they often purchase from their parents yeah. um, under the guise of protection. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, um, for some of them, they said, well, you know, we're going to help them get medical care because they can't otherwise afford it. And so if you come to the side, Joe, and you give us your dime, we'll make sure those dimes go to the child's welfare. And so people could see as being sort of economically contributing. But they're also seen as being sort of wider exemplars for what modern medicine could do. Um, And whether or not the children saw any benefit is mixed. Um, 
but it certainly provides the showman with, I think, a very compelling story for why people should continue to support um, the freak show. And the other thing that they do is they say, well, there's no one else who's willing to take care of these children, right? Like, if, you know, regular society has, you know, thrown these people away, we're the ones who are caring for them. And so it also sort of points out to, I think, some really legitimate gaps in things like child welfare and just how profoundly children with, with disabilities um, um, were left out of that system in some ways. They weren't even seen as being children in some ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of brings us to your chapter uh, about the Dion quintuplets, mm-hmm. um, a very Canadian example, <laughs> obviously. Um, and they're very much of that time period where um, the medicalization of childhood sort of allowed for their exhibition. Yeah, yeah, quite directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they become sort of exemplars of childhoods when the reality is that their childhood is so completely compromised by their exhibition. I think one of the things that I find really interesting about the Dion story is oftentimes we don't see it as a story connected to the freak show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's because they're often deemed to be cute they're beautiful little girls. There just happen to be five of them. And we associate uh, freakery, I think, more commonly with things associated with ugliness. But cute has its own really troubled history, especially related to childhood. It helps make children into commodities. Um, but of course, the Ontario government steps in with the Dion's because the father, with the blessing of the, his parish priest, um, enters into a contract with a sideshowman from the U.S. to put the girls on exhibit if they're well enough to go. And Dr. Defoe was supposed to give his approval and was knew about this contract. Um, but this contract provides the impetus for the Ontario government in the name of care and welfare to step in and take the children away from their parents, which was quite an extraordinary act, because they leave the other Dion children with the parents. Um, and then end up essentially building their own sideshow. It doesn't travel, it stays, but it's very much in the line of the 1930s freak show. Mm-hmm. I guess what's interesting too about the Dion story is that as adults, they speak back very directly to their experience. Yeah, yeah. And, it and is. Uh, your other subjects, perhaps you don't have those same kinds of of um, first-person narratives and reflections. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, one of the things that's hard about the freak show is that so much of the material uses stage names, and so even knowing the children's real names is difficult. Mm. And then I think what is probably common with children who have experienced some sense of exploitation is that when it's over, you want your own privacy back. And so you don't necessarily want a historian snooping around for whatever reason, right, good or bad, um, that you want to be able to hold your own story privately. And so the Dion's are a a good example because they've spoken so publicly, like you point out, whereas other children didn't for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to go back a little bit to um, 
the idea of the small and cute yeah. and their relationship to the freak. Um, I love the phrase, the spectacularization <laughs> of small and cute, because it's, it's related to exploitation, mm -hmm. but we don't think of it as exploitation in the same way, um, it, but it's part of the extraordinary and the spectacular mm -hmm. in a very seemingly innocuous way. Yeah, because they're just cute. You can appreciate them, you can pet them, you can hold them, you can consume them, and it seems sort of innocent, mm -hmm. right? Or it doesn't seem ill-intentioned. And it, it could be those things, but I think um, the overall structure of it is that it can be very dangerous, right? Is that you don't realize what's at stake when you've dismissed something as cute, you've diminished it, right? You've turned it into something that could be petted um, and held or otherwise consumed. And with that, then you sort of remove yourself out of a system of power relations that are still there. And this happened with the display of people of small stature as well, right? Who were displayed as dolls, so not even fully human or as children when they were adults, mm -hmm. just because we have those associations of larger stature with adulthood. They're not, they're, that's not of nature, right? Though again, that's of culture. But I think that also allowed the showman to put on seemingly much more positive exhibits, family-friendly exhibits, exhibits that children could consume um, without being concerned about what they were learning, it seemed very innocent. Yes, it's hard to object to exactly. those performances. Exactly. So you know the, you know, the people who object to other performances won't come at you for that stuff. But they're not unproblematic, mm -hmm. right? It's just a, it's it's a profoundly different framing, but it's not unpro unproblematic. I think a lot of really good histories make us think about the present day. And reading your book, in one way, you know, you read thinking, gee, I'm glad this is a, a thing <laughs> of the past. I'm glad the, the carnival sideshow doesn't exist in the same way today. But also, as I read the book, I could see some real similarities in the way we display and commodify and exploit bodies today. I guess just one example would be reality television <laughs> yes. and the sideshow that is much of reality television. Um, did you grapple with that as a historian? How did that? Yeah. How did you, you know, write during the day and then turn the television on <laughs> at night? Yeah, it's true because I think a lot of the groundwork that created the opportunity for the sideshow persists, even though the sideshow in some places is banned. And I think this is one of the issues with banning the sideshow, is people say, well, we banned the sideshow, that's nice, it's done, we can continue on. We'll go turn on the TV and watch about the half-tree man or something, but that has somehow, <laughs> there's a distance there, right? Um, and I struggled with where to end the book, and at one point I thought, gosh, this book is never going to be done, <laughs> because where do you end it? Um, and that's why I ended it with Pookie, is what I think might be one of the last children in a live display as a freak show proper. But in of, Canada. In Canada. But of course, um, a cursory look at YouTube channels and Instagram accounts 
but also point out that the children are still being commodified and exploited, not in precisely the same way, but in very similar fashion. Um, and I suspect this has to do with just how profitable it is. And much like the freak show, you're taking something that already exists and with very little capital investment, to use the language of business, you can get a lot from it. And that's also because things like cute continue to sell, right? We still want to look at cute things. And I don't know if it's, you know, biological or somehow rooted in social psychology or, or whatever, but there seems to also be a compulsion towards looking at difference mm -hmm. and looking at difference in a way that marginalizes it rather than coming to terms or reckoning with the wide variance of the human body as nature, right? Um, there's something very interesting about the human body in that it does have an enormous amount of variation mm -hmm. that is all quote-unquote natural and normal, and yet we parse it as if it's not. But I don't know what's happening today, because <laughs> um, I, I think it would have, you'd have to do a pretty deep dive on what's happening today to figure out those connections. I certainly see them. I couldn't speak to them in terms of any level of high proof. Right. Yeah. Listening to you talk a little bit about the book, um, I get the impression that you were sometimes surprised by what you found in the archives, mm -hmm. that finding children in the archives when you were looking for information about sideshow performers was a bit of a shock yeah. and that it guided this work in a way you hadn't expected. Yeah, I can remember the distinct moment of sitting in the archives in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which is the Circus World Museum archives, a fabulous collection. And I was waiting for boxes to be delivered and I just started flipping through a photograph album and then all of a sudden and like you see the same photographs in every archive, so it's sort of a quick scam. But there was this one photograph that just stopped me because it was of children. And I'd seen children's photographs before. But this one picture of this little boy and this little girl, they weren't performing. And they were clearly quite discontented in the photograph. And it all of a sudden hit me at that point that they were children. But I also think that speaks to how hard it is sometimes to see past the promotional material, mm -hmm. that even as a researcher at the beginning of this project, I was not always able to see who was actually there, that I was just looking at freaks and not looking at people. And it was that one moment where I looked and I said, oh, that, oh they're children. And then, of course, it got me into this whole history of childhood and youth, which I find fascinating. And it took me to New York to read letters of people offering their kids to sideshows um, out of desperation. And then in the medical literature, I was, um, it was hard to read people say things like, you know, it, it's a shame this child will live. What are, what are the parents going to do? And the same thing with those letters to the New York, New York World's Fair. The one doctor writes and says, you know, can you take this child on the sideshow? I don't know what the parents are going to do now that it survived. And so that was 
that was illuminating in regards to the fact that I had very much thought I was doing a cultural history around popular and consumer culture, and then all of a sudden being taken into this really fascinating history of childhood and youth. Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell us just a little bit, if you don't mind, about the project you're working on currently? Yeah, so the whole idea of, you know, oh, it's the, the concern that the child had lived got me thinking about the question, and this is Judith Butler's question in Precarious Life, about what makes a life grievable. Mm. And grief clearly isn't tied to the dead or the living exclusively, right? It, it transcends both. And so I started thinking about the history of child death in Canada, and so that's where I'm going now, from the freak show to child death, um, and looking particularly at the sort of emotional regimes involved in infanticide. Um, yeah, that's where I am right now. That's really depressing. But, um, <laughs> but, but fascinating, especially from that historical vantage point. There are certain things that we don't think about in a historical way. We don't think about certain topics having a history. And I think your readers will be really, really engaged with that subject matter as a history. Um, There there is a way in which um, our thinking about child infanticide changes Mm -hmm. over time. Yeah, and quite radically, right? I think one of the things that often surprises people is the degree of leniency uh, expressed by courts towards women who had committed infanticide. Um, but I think in that leniency, what they also saw was um, the devastation in women's lives. And so what I see this project, to go back to the very beginning of the project on women's history, as trying to look not at the separation between mother and child, but at how they're interbodied. Um, and why that matters. Well, I will look forward to reading that book. Oh, thanks, Renee. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's been great chatting. Love the book. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.